Joe McQuaid, longtime publisher and now editor-at-large of the New Hampshire Union Leader. We're going to spend an hour talking about the history of the New Hampshire primary. That's all? Yes, that's oh, all. But okay. before we get into history, let's talk about the current one. So Michael Bloomberg is, is not uh, competing in Iowa or New Hampshire, even the early primaries, and is committing lots and lots of money later mm -hmm. on in the process. What does that do to the relevance of your primary? You know, there are always questions about the relevance of the New Hampshire primary dating back to its modern-day beginnings. Um, people aren't going to campaign, or they're going to spend a lot of money, or they're not. So the short answer is, I don't know. There are 10 or 11 serious candidates for the Democratic nomination, and he's blowing by the early ones and thinks he can um, get street cred uh, by buying it, which I think is probably not going to work for him. He said recently that even if he doesn't win the nomination, he'll spend money to help whoever wins the nomination get elected. But I think that just underlines, I have all the money in the world, I'm going to spend it. So I don't know. People asked about the, the relevance of the primary with these televised debates, which I hate to call them debates because they aren't. They're reality shows. And the DNC, in cooperation with the various networks, have already sliced the field down based on money and poll numbers, right, down to uh, the most recent one is going to have six people in it. And they've had that few or close to that in the past when there are more candidates than that. I think that um, hurts the relevance of the primary nominating process entirely, not just New Hampshire's role as the first primary. But as you said, it seems like quadrennially there's a debate about whether or not these first two primary states should, uh, primary caucus states should, should continue to have the role they do. So make the case for our viewers. Why should they continue? Okay. Now, first, and you corrected yourself there about the primary in the caucus, as Governor John Sununu liked to say, Iowa picks corn, New Hampshire picks presidents. I love that. Um, Iowa sort of snuck up on New Hampshire a few years ago. Caucus, what is that? A bunch of people in a living room? That doesn't count. Well, the media and the candidates now say it counts. Um, but the, the relevance of the early states is the ability of candidates to come in and try to convince voters uh, to vote for them. Well, I don't know if I've answered your question, which was... Well, why, why is it, I mean, the demographics and the few delegates are the arguments, the counter-arguments to it continuing, so why should it continue to have that spot? I think with, you cited Bloom, Bloomberg and a lot of money, and I cited the, the networks thing, I think it's, it's the first and last place where a candidate is upfront and personal, if he or she chooses, with voters. And voters get to uh, kick the tires on them. Now, having said that, that's not always the history of the New Hampshire primary. Uh, I hate to be the naysayer. Oh, you got to be there. You got to shake hands. Jimmy Carter did it, right? Um, in 1952, which was the first time that the names were on the ballot, um, the guy who won on the Republican side wasn't in the state, didn't campaign here, wasn't even in the country, Eisenhower. And the same thing happened in 1964, 
where the Republican who won the primary was not only not in the state or in the country, he wasn't on the ballot. Henry Cabot Lodge won on a write-in. So New Hampshire's always different. Um, I think it appreciates being first, and people turn out. It's one of the highest turnout states, at least in primaries, in the country. And if if it was so, um, you know, too wide and not representative of the country, then with the exception of Bloomberg, who has not cited that as a reason, but why are all these other candidates coming to New Hampshire? Why aren't they just saying, it's too white and I'm not going there? Your Secretary of State, Bill Gardner, is the longest-serving Secretary of State in, in the country. Uh, how important has he been to the process of keeping the primary first? He's He's been important because he gets it. And the law was changed uh, years ago to have the Secretary of State and just the Secretary of State make that decision, and he or in the future she makes it when they determine that nobody else is going to um, have a similar event before them. He's important to it because he has street credibility. He's a Democrat, and he actually was challenged uh, in his last uh, election. It's, it's elected by the state legislature, and a really partisan Democrat tried to make it into a really partisan office, and Bill Gardner hung on by the skin of his teeth. But he is honest as the day is long. He knows the history, and he doesn't do anything to, to either mar that history or give the idea that this is anything other than a straight shooting event. Political relevance aside, how yeah. much does the primary mean to New Hampshire's image and its economy? You know, economy-wise, uh, other than Pete DuPont was allegedly the guy who built the WMUR TV studios in Manchester because he spent so much money um, in in the day uh, was really a lot. But economy-wise, even with 11 serious candidates, um, they spend some time here, they spend some time in Iowa. I haven't seen a recent dollar figure on how much that is. I'm sure the state would, would say it's worth $8 zillion. zillion. But it is, it's a point of pride for the people. The, the local public radio station in New Hampshire um, did a podcast this year called Stranglehold. And it's a, a series ostensibly, well, it's about the, the New Hampshire presidential primary. But it's very negative about the primary. And I'm wondering, all the people in New Hampshire who support and listen to that station, what are they getting for their buck? It, it was astonishing to me. I listened to two episodes and stopped listening because I was no longer interested. It's long, for one thing. Um, maybe they said some good things about it. They... They unveiled the Dixville Notch, which is one of the first towns to vote, really doesn't have a lot of people in it. And they have to find people to have enough to vote for it. As a matter of fact, this time, they've had to, they, they got a fifth guy to come in and register. He happens to own the mothballed hotel, and he's trying to revive the place. And he moved from another town just to be the fifth guy to be in there. There are other early towns that have done it in the past, like 
heart's location, etc. But it's 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 pride. You won't get, you know, maybe this is the exception, the NHPR, but you won't get a lot of people in New Hampshire dissing the New Hampshire presidential primary <clears throat> because they know how much it has meant in the history of the country. In addition to the, the tradition of Dixville Notch or Hart's location, the tiny towns voting first, a couple of other things that distinguish it is the low barrier to entry, the low filing fee that in past years has brought many dozens of candidates into the process. Does that still happen, and does it impact the process? I think it's, uh, I think it's a little heftier now. It may be $1,000. I'm not sure. I have not run, but Vermin Supreme runs every four years. Do you know Vermin Supreme? The man with the boot on his the head. The man with the boot on his head, and his campaign has something to do with ponies for everybody. He manages to come up with the, the dollars. It used to be um, hundreds of people on the ballot, uh, Chief Burning Wood, and all kinds of people who just wanted their name on the ballot. So th I think the Secretary of State uh, did bump up the fee to something uh, a little more credible. Um, but you still get a lot of off-the-wall candidates who are here just to get a little attention, are very upset if the newspaper or the TV or the radio doesn't give them the same attention as it gives others. But you have to draw the line uh, somewhere. The other thing that distinguishes it, uh, not alone in this, but is that it's a, an open primary, that you can yes. cross party lines. How does that affect the ultimate outcome? Well, um, independents, um, my late buddy Don Tibbetts was our State House Bureau Chief for many years, and he, he didn't like that term, independents. He called them undeclared voters. It's not like they're in the independent party. But they are at least a third of the electorate, and they can go, they can walk into the polling station on election morning and say, I want a Democratic ballot and vote for the Democrat. They can come right out and go back up to the uh, uh, people at the uh, registration office and say, okay, switch me back to undeclared or independent. They can do it on the Republican side. I don't know if there's been a, any really good analysis of how much of an effect that was, but I think you can see it over the years in certain races, um, Lodge being one. Barry Goldwater, Mr. Conservative Republican, versus Nelson Rockefeller, uh, New York Eastern Establishment. They lost to a guy with a write-in, and I think that was because people were upset with the choices, and people who may have not had a particular party affiliation decided they were going to do that. And 68 certainly was a was an anti-war vote, and 72 an anti-war vote. And I think you get people going on one side or the other as a result of that. And I think Trump is the $64 million question, right? Just what has Trump's been effect on the electorate? He's got the Republican Party in his pocket. But are a lot of undeclareds upset with Trump? going to go into the Democratic primary um, to vote for one of those people hoping they can beat Trump? Or are they going to go in the Republican field and go for—it's uh, pretty much uh, Governor Weld is the only one running on that side. He thinks he's going to do better than I think he's going to do. I think 
the Republicans are going to go for Trump, the Trump people, and a lot of undeclareds are going to go Democratic because they want to pick somebody whom they think has the best chance of beating Trump. Another mainstay of the New Hampshire primary has been your newspaper's editorials. Yeah. Uh, so famously, in the last go-round, you did not support Donald Trump as a candidate. <laughs> what, no. uh, what are you going to do this time? Um, well, with Trump first, I honest to God did not know when I compared him with the grown-up Biff in Back to the Future 2 that the screenwriter of that um, movie had based the grown-up Biff character on Donald Trump. I didn't know it. Just kids met. What are we going to do this time? Um, I think we're going to endorse on the Democratic side. Some people go, the Democrats? We've done that in the past. Uh, we endorsed uh, Joe Lieberman years ago. Um, on the Republican side, I don't think it's worth much because the Trump people have the party, etc. We're not going to endorse Trump. Uh, we may say, if you don't like Trump, there is another guy in the race, Bill Weld. I don't know if that will be an endorsement. I think the, the real play is on the Democratic side, and it's a year when there are so many um, candidates that even the conservative union leader's voice might have some difference. Well, speaking of uh, Bill Weld, uh, yeah. this time around on the Democratic side, there's at least three candidates with geographic proximity, mm. Sanders, Warren, and uh, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. Right. How much has proximity mattered to New Hampshire voters? I was asked that question the other day, and I don't think a lot. I think, I think Bernie Sanders won the primary in 2016 because he wasn't Hillary Clinton, and it should have been a wake-up call to the Democrats that maybe she wasn't the best candidate. He was known to them. Um, Ed Muskie won the Democratic primary in 1972. He was from the neighboring state of Maine, but he certainly didn't win it to the expectations that he was supposed to. Um, I'm not sure how much Paul Songus beat Bill Clinton uh, by uh, in 1992, but I don't think it really has a lot of play. And especially with, you've got Warren, you've got DeVal, you've got Weld, you've got Sanders. There's a lot of ways that it can be split up. I don't think it makes any difference. So you've been covering the New Hampshire primary as a journalist for yeah. all of your career. Uh, from a personal memory standpoint, what's the very earliest New Hampshire primary memory that you have in your life? Oh, goodness. Um, primary, I don't know. Uh, General election is 1960 when my mother said they should have run Eisenhower again. He would have beaten both Kennedy and Nixon. But that was just her. Um, probably 1968, I was in college. <clears throat> it was McCarthy versus LBJ uh, on that side and Nixon on the Republican side. And William Loeb in the paper were very much in Nixon's corner that year. Um, and on the Democratic side, I don't think I was as aware of it then as I am now, but the guy that ran Eugene McCarthy's campaign had started our Sunday newspaper with my dad in 1946. Who was that? A gentleman named Blair Clark, who was later president of CBS News and editor of The Nation magazine, and how those two guys politically ever got along, 
They didn't for long, but uh, McCarthy did not win in 1968. Johnson beat him on a write-in, but <clears throat> McCarthy beat the expectations game, which is what this is all about. So my my professional memories really uh, jump more. I didn't cover a lot in 68, but in 72, uh, I was the editor of the Sunday paper, and Mr. Muskie pulled up in front of the paper. And yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I want to start with the 1952 race. The Why? Why don't you start at the beginning, Susan? Well, for one thing we should note, New Hampshire is celebrating its centennial, 100 years of this. So when did it actually become the, what we know today, the relevant? Uh, we're celebrating more than our centennial. We're celebrating the centennial of being first in 1920. We joined the fray in 1916, and the guy who owned the union and leader before that uh, had a lot to do with the whole primary system and was a buddy of Teddy Roosevelt, a guy named Frank Knox. Anywho, bump up. Um, 1948 was the last time that the candidates' names were not on the ballot. And that was changed by a couple of people in the legislature and Governor Adams, uh, Sherman Adams, and I don't know if when he did it he had in mind uh, getting Eisenhower to run. But even then, the modern primary their names were on the ballot, but that didn't mean anything because the delegates' names were on the ballot, and those were often separate from from the presidential. Confusing, Com confusing as hell. And initially, uh, Truman said, "I'm not going to run in the primaries. What the hell are primaries about?" But it made a difference. So in 1952, the yeah. ca the candidates were on the ballot for the first time. Yep. You started to tell that story about uh, about the GOP side with. With Eisenhower. Eisenhower, who was serving as NATO chief in Europe Correct. at that point. So, uh, talk to me about the relevance of that on the Democratic side with President Truman and then the Republican side. Okay. And well, like a good interviewer, uh, you ask a question and I ignore it and tell you a different answer. <laughs> it's okay. And I, I, I don't want to forget that little trivia, which very few people know, is that Eisenhower came to New Hampshire before the presidential primary in 1948. At the invitation of William Loeb's then partner owning the paper, a gentleman named Leonard Finder, he spoke at the union leader speaking series. He was in uniform. Spoke in front of City Hall, and Finder was trying to get him to run for president, which Loeb didn't like at all because Loeb in 1948 was for Thomas Dewey. Um, Eisenhower goes back to the military and writes a famous letter that says, um, now military people shouldn't get involved in politics. I'm out. 52, he wasn't out. But on the Democratic side, Truman had completed his first elected term as president and, you know, had won that stunning race in 48 against Dewey. And it was assumed that he was going to run again. He didn't have consent to having his name put on the New Hampshire ballot until just a little bit before the election. And he was primaried, which is a word that's become a verb now. He was primaried by a Tennessee U.S. Senator named Estes Kefauver, who a lot of people outside of C-SPAN do not know. And he campaigned in New Hampshire wearing a coonskin cap 
and this is before Davy Crockett appeared on Disney. And he really wasn't a Senator Cornpone. He was a very sophisticated guy. And he'd gotten some national um, visibility because of some racketeering hearings that his uh, Senate committee had held. And Keith Arthur came up here, and he beat Harry Truman. Harry Truman, within several weeks, announced he was not running for president again. Before we move on in history, why has Harry Truman's stock gone up so much over the years when he was not clearly not popular at the time he was in office as he was leaving? I think that happens with most presidents. It's happened with Nixon in terms of his worldview uh, and getting us out of entanglements in Vietnam. Um, I'm thinking as you ask the question, will it happen with Donald Trump? That one's... That one's a, a real question mark to me. But Harry Truman uh, was a plain-spoken guy. Um, he got in trouble um, because he had some people in the cabinet who were, I think, uh, making personal gains out of their positions when 52 rolled around. And he wasn't as tough on communism as you had to be in 1952. But his stock has gone up since then because in the closing days of World War II, a guy who hadn't been plugged in on anything by FDR's people until FDR died. And they said, okay, Harry, here's the keys to the place. And by the way, we have something called the A-bomb. And Truman had to deal with that and deal with the end of the war. And dealing with a war ravaged Europe. And um, I think historians now, especially uh, with McCullough's great work, uh, assess him uh, higher, higher than he was at the time and higher than my brother assesses him. That's important. Oh, it is. Yes. So 1968, we were in the throes of Vietnam, and by, by New Hampshire, we didn't know how that year was going to unfold with the King assassinations, uh, Kennedy assassination, uh, the tumultuous conventions. But in the primary, what happened in 1968? Well, Kennedy wasn't in yet. He had been talking about it. This is and Robert for our viewers. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. um, what happened um, was that Kennedy saw what Gene McCarthy was able to do in terms of young people, a lot of young people from out of state coming in because McCarthy was clear about it. He was for getting out of Vietnam. He was the anti-war candidate. He was a bit of a, a, a poet. And people came in and slept on people's floors and basements and walked around campaigning for McCarthy. And Johnson, who ended up a few weeks afterwards not running at all, I think it was a, it was a duplicate of what happened to Truman in 52. Truman loses the, the primary and several weeks later says, I'm not running. Johnson, even though it was a write-in, it was very well organized by the state Democratic Party. McCarthy gets more than 40% of the vote, which is unheard of. Johnson sees that and he's not running. So that was huge. On the Republican side, it was pretty much uh, Nixon. He had uh, a couple of people who were toying about it. Rockefeller was toying about it. Um, uh, didn't get in. Uh, Romney did get in. Uh, famously took a tour of South Vietnam uh, by the generals, since the mood was changing in the country, said, oh, I guess I was brainwashed in saying he was for the war. So Nixon rolled up a substantial victory. Um, you mentioned editorials in the union leader. 
uh, William Loeb was running the paper at that time and was famous for his front page editorials about many things, including presidential politics. And I always remembered the alliterative headlines of his editorials. And one in 1968, when Rockefeller was thinking about it, was entitled Nels the Knife. It's got a ring to it. And it was all about how Nelson Rockefeller was stabbing his friends in the back, including Jake Javits, um, ostensibly so he could move them out of the way and run against Nixon. And wasn't I surprised when Patrick J. Buchanan, future presidential candidate in New Hampshire, um, acknowledged to me and then to the world in his autobiography, or, or rather his book on Nixon, that Pat Buchanan wrote Nelson the Knife, not William Loeb. Isn't that interesting? It is extraordinary. Why would Mr. Loeb take something from a political operative? Because he loved Pat Buchanan. When Nixon decided in 1967 that he was going to come back, his first hire was a young editorial writer from St. Louis, actually from Washington, D.C., named Patrick J. Buchanan. And among his first assignments, Nixon said, was to go up to the north shore of Massachusetts and become friendly with one William Loeb, because we're going to need this guy. And Buchanan did, drove up in a snowstorm, met William and Naki Loeb. They loved him. He loved them, his plain way of speaking, Loeb's. And they became very close. So I, <laughs> even though the image is, I haven't found another one that Loeb didn't write. Um, but while the image is that he wrote all the hard-hitting editorials, he was happy to take that from uh, Pat. And Nixon, they, they fly into Manchester, Buchanan and Nixon, for a campaign visit. Aide rushes up to the plane with a copy of the paper with the Nelson Knife editorial, and Nixon says to Buchanan, how come you can't write like that? that that's a funny story. <laughs> so we're going to fast forward to 1972, Nixon re-elect, Vietnam still raging. And this is the year when Mr. Loeb really became nationally known. We have a bit of video from this we're going to watch oh, and then great. have you tell the story. Let's take a look. By attacking me, by attacking my wife, he's proved himself to be a gutless coward. I hope that the people of Manchester find a way to say to the pride of Pride's Crossing <laughs> that they don't like his kind of journalism here in New Hampshire and that they say it in a way that they can make it stick. That's the only way he'll understand that here in northern New England we respect each other. That's something I don't extend to him. Wow. I, I could spend two hours on that whole thing. Uh, very briefly, I think what Muskie was attempting to do and failed colossally at it was something that another candidate in 1960 successfully did attacking William Loeb in front of his paper. This was the night before the general election in the park across the street from the Union Leader Building at the time and the candidate uh, before quite a bigger crowd and I'm paraphrasing but he said there may be a worse newspaper and a worse publisher in these United States than William Loeb and a union leader. But if there are, I can't think of them right now. John F. Kennedy. That's on the front page the next day that Kennedy has called out William Loeb. William Loeb gets space to respond. William Loeb's response is to the effect that 
spoiled brat like that. You don't want him in the White House running world affairs. Fast forward to 1972, Muskie. Muskie is losing traction to McGovern. McGovern is the clearer anti-war message. Muskie's trying to be a bit of a mugwump on it. So somebody, and it may be because he read how well Kennedy had done in this, that he decided he would call the guy out. But it's, I don't, it's not bogus, but it's, it's over the top in several senses. One is it's a snowy Saturday in February or March in 1972. There's no way William Loeb's going to be in that building because Muskie shakes his fist and says, come down here, right? Loeb lived in Massachusetts and came into New Hampshire once a month to have his advisory board meetings. Um, secondly, Muskie says, attacking my wife. The attack on his wife was a Newsweek digest item, I think it was in Newsmakers or some political thing, of two paragraphs, which were condensed down from a long article in Women's Wear Daily by a reporter named Candy Stroud. I saw Candy Stroud three weeks ago. She's uh, flacking for John Delaney, candidate for president, Democrat. Her piece was reduced by Newsweek and run. I, don't, I didn't see Muskie going into New York on a flatbed trailer and calling out the editors of Newsweek for this attack on his wife, which was merely a first-person account by Miss Stroud of being on the campaign bus with Jane Muskie and how Jane Muskie liked to kick back, smoke a cigarette, uh, tell how she would have a drink in the evening, say her husband was cute. It was harmless. I thought um, that maybe there had been some editorial that went along with it. There wasn't. It was just that. The big thing that Muskie should have been upset about and should have spent more time at and wouldn't have choked up if he wasn't talking about his wife, if he was talking about something called the Canuck letter, he would have had a better case. <laughs> have to go back. Uh, Nixon tried twice to get Loeb on his side in 1972, but the big, big break was when Loeb said he was going to China. Loeb had a long history with China, and there was no way he was going to support a guy who was breaking bread with the Red Chinese. Um, Loeb gets a letter. Um, I got to back up, though. He tries twice to um, get Lo Nixon does to get Loeb on his side. He sends up two guys named Herb Klein and Ken Clausen. Klein is the communications director for the White House. Clausen is his assistant. Uh, they come up. Loeb's out of town. No, Loeb is in town for this one. They have lunch at the Manchester Country Club. I'm there. My father's there. A couple of the other editors. And on their way out, Loeb says to these two guys, I think you're going to be interested in what's in the paper tomorrow. Now, I wasn't involved in the daily paper, and my father, who was, didn't know either. The next day, there's a front-page editorial by William Loeb. Muskie insults Franco-Americans. And it's an editorial about how uh, Muskie's been in Florida at a drug rehabilitation house, um, and two people were there, young people, 
write to Mr. William Loeb at the Manchester Guardian in his childish scrawl, and I'm paraphrasing the letter, but they say they went to see candidate Muskie at the drug rehab house, and they asked him if he had a problem uh, in Maine with Negroes. And Muskie said to them, or an aide said, and Muskie laughed, no, we have a problem with Canucks. Dear Mr. Loeb, can you tell us what a Canuck is? Signed, Paul something, Deerfield Beach, Florida. Now, to be fair to Loeb, he got hundreds of letters a week. And in those days, he ran all the letters. But I would think that particular letter he would want to um, verify and would certainly want to uh, get a reaction from Muskie because he runs the thing on the editorial page and calls attention to it from his editorial. I believe the letter was bogus. Uh, I believe uh, during the Watergate, uh, uh, not hearings, but in the, all the stories that Woodward and Bernstein um, think that a guy named Donald Segretti may have written it. I asked Pat Buchanan, who was in the White House with Nixon, and he said he didn't write it, and he doesn't know who wrote it, but they all loved it in the paper, because that was ostensibly the reason for Muskie to come up. He had somebody from this drug rehab house in Florida with him on his little flatbed, and I think the guy spoke, too, about this. Um, Canuck, by that time, it was still a slur to some people in the, in the mill city of Manchester, but it was also the name of a National Hockey League team in Canada. It didn't have the bite that it did before. Muskie lost because Muskie choked up about his wife. The Associated Press reporter saw tears. Uh, Broder from the Post said that he choked up that way. Our reporter didn't see tears. Our reporter, though, if I'd made her call William Loeb to get his reaction to being called a liar, she would have teared up. She wouldn't do it. I had to call William Loeb. What do you think William Loeb says? He says, geez, guy like that gets upset about a newspaper published in New Hampshire. I don't want him in, in the White House with his finger on the nuclear button. If you listen to that, that's sort of paraphrasing what William Loeb said in 1960 about John Kennedy. But I didn't know that because I was nine in 1960. So front page, I write a headline, and I still had a job the next day. Muskie calls Loeb liar. 84-point caps. Big story. And sidebar, Loeb says Muskie's getting upset, and he shouldn't be the president. And that was the end of Ed Muskie. It, it, it was an editorial, the Canuck one. But what Muskie got upset about was this attack on his wife really wasn't much of an attack. I, I just read it again the other night, and it, today it wouldn't, it wouldn't rate running in the paper. It would be a, not even a paragraph. It was just lady on the campaign bus. 1980, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, the um, Iran hostage crisis. This was uh, Jimmy Carter reelect challenge from Ted Kennedy on the Democratic side. We had a, quite a group of candidates on the Republican side in 1980. Uh, we have another piece of video to watch from 1980. Okay. It's a famous one. Let's watch. You asked me if you could make an announcement first. And I asked your permission to make an announcement myself. Would the sound man please turn Mr. Reagan's mic off for a minute? 
Is this on? Mr. Green, you turn on the microphone. You asked for me if you would. I am paying for this microphone, Mr. Green. So on the Republican side, we had Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Howard Baker, Phil Crane, Bob Dole, John Connolly, John Anderson. We saw them on that video. What did that moment do for Ronald Reagan? Uh, it made him remember an old movie called State of the Union, starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. came out in 1948. Sorry I'm going so far afield, Susan, but I find politics interesting. And Tracy is running for president in this movie, and he gets sort of co-opted by the Wall Street types, and he goes off his progressive script. Um, and the denouement of this movie is a live television broadcast in his living room in 1948, in which he speaks from the heart. He's trying to win Hepburn back. And um, the evil campaign manager, Adolf Manjou, uh, signals to the technician running the show um, to shut off either the mic or the, or the TV camera. And Tracy sees that. And what do you think he says? <laughs> he says, don't touch this show. I'm paying for this show. Ronald Reagan was a movie actor before he was a uh, presidential politician, and a very good one. And I think um, while he, he had uh, a right to be upset because he was paying for this microphone, and it wasn't Mr. Green, it was the late John Breen from the National Telegraph, but... Um, it, he wanted to show that he was in charge, and that showed that he was in charge. All those guys in back of him, they didn't get to say anything at that event. It was just Reagan and Bush, because that's all Bush wanted was him against Reagan. And Bush sat there on his hands and didn't say a word during this back and forth between the national newspaper and candidate Reagan. And Reagan um, was said to have really, he's, he's not too old for the job. Bernie Sanders could be his grandfather, but Reagan at the time was late 60s, early 70s. But it showed that he was more than a match for whatever was thrown at him. And a, a lot of people, including his, uh, his New Hampshire campaign guy, Jerry Carmen, said that Reagan already had it won. Uh, so there's, there's still talk about what really did it for him. I think Reagan showed himself throughout that campaign to be a sharp guy and not too old for the job, and people underestimated him. But I, I think he watched that movie. But I asked Marlon Fitzwater once in the White House, he was his press secretary, if he'd heard that story, and Fitzwater said, yeah, and I said, has anybody asked the president about it. We were, I was about to interview him, and Fitzwater said, no, and if I were you, I wouldn't, and I didn't have the guts to ask him. But it's in a couple of books. 19, <clears throat> excuse me, 1984 was C-SPAN's first New Hampshire primary. Yeah, it's been a while. Bigger than that, wasn't it a day in the life of the union leader? It was. Well. It was. Uh, remember it well, as a matter of fact. Uh, on the, it was Ronald Reagan re-elect on the Republican side of the Democrats, 
Senator Gary Hart defeated former Vice President Walter Mondale. Our piece of video, a little self-serving from the video library, we're going to show you a bit from our first visit to New Hampshire. Great. I can't believe you're endorsing Ronald Reagan um, with your newspaper, and I and I think that it's sort of an insult to the uh, Democrats. Even if you pick the worst Democrat, I would feel a lot better about it than if you're picking a Republican. Mr. McCray? I'm not going to apologize for our paper endorsing uh, Reagan. Really, I apologize for Democrats who uh, can't come up with anybody better than the uh, PAC-8 to nominate. Now, wow, yeah. who is that? <laughs> Minus the mustache these days. Is that days. Scully? Is that Steve Scully? No, that's you. But, oh. you know, the reason I wanted to just show that clip was uh, when we were there in 1984, we used to go into the diners and the coffee clutches, and we were the only camera there. Now... It's a scrum, uh, and, and cameras from all over the world and in all kinds of media. When was the, the dividing point? When did that change that so many people started covering it? You know, I think it was a little earlier than 1984, but not to, to the degree that it is now. Um, I couldn't put a, a, a date on it. I know that in 1980, before Reagan paid for the microphone in Nashua, he had a lot of cameras following him around, including in my mother's living room in, in Candia one snowy Saturday the week before. The networks, but there were only three, and they would only come up for the very end of it. Now you have, from day one, a candidate with a name shows up in New Hampshire early. You'll find camera crews with him from Boston as well as the cable nationally. And and now um, I have a friend uh, recently back from the West. I want to have lunch, and I think to myself, oh, we could go to the Red Arrow. No, not in the month before the New Hampshire presidential primary. You don't know which of 400 candidates is going to be in there, but there won't be room for them and their camera crews and regular people uh, too. There are actually times you're talking about the economy of the state and how good it is. It is good, but it, sometimes for the for the uh, restaurants, uh, especially the diners and the coffee shop, gets in the way of serving their regular uh, crowd. And you can sometimes see in those many camera shots some of the leg, re regular patrons being a little put out by all these people around them. But it goes away. 1988 is our next piece of video. It happened on the night of the New Hampshire primary. Let's watch this. Mr. Vice President, if you look right down at that monitor, you'll see the man that you beat tonight. That's uh, Senator Bob Dole, who is standing by in his headquarters. Anything you'd like to say to him at this point? No, just wish him well and meet him in the South. And Senator Dole, is there anything you'd like to say to the Vice President? Yeah, stop lying about my record. That's not extraordinary in these days on say everything on TV, uh, a lot of the candidates as well as a lot of their backers. But back in that day, wow, one candidate, a U.S. senator, against uh, a vice president accuses him of lying about his record. He should have said it a couple of days earlier, right? Because uh, Bush beat him there. And Bush beat Dole there in part because of Governor John Sununu, who was really good about getting George Bush uh, out of the limo and uh, 
into the streets to show the everyman thing, especially because I think in Iowa, Dole had done better. Um, so Sununu arranged for a great camera shot of Bush driving a snowplow around. And he also uh, prevailed upon the TV station uh, to run a fresh set of ads um, on the weekend of the primary, which <clears throat> apparently you, you don't do it. Or it's difficult to do unless you know the station manager and call him up and prevail upon him. So it was, uh, it was quite a moment. Dole came back. Senator Dole had uh, won the Iowa caucus, and George H.W. Bush came in third in Iowa. Yeah. So his, his win there was quite a leap forward. On the, um, on the Democratic side, uh, and, and we're, our time is going to run out pretty quickly, that was the year of Joe Biden's plagiarism issue, 1988. Um, does that still have resonance for him as a candidate today? I don't think a lot of people know about it anymore, but it's a, it has resonance for the New Hampshire presidential primary because it was in response to a question not from a nosy uh, newsman, but from a guy who was holding a coffee in his house for Biden. And he asked uh, innocently something about uh, Biden's uh, curriculum vitae. And uh, Biden started inventing things. He, he took offense at the question. Um, I don't think that's uh, Biden's problem today. I think Biden comes across as a real guy, but he, like uh, Bernie and a couple of the others, are pretty long in the tooth. Our next is 1992 and video once again. Let's watch. is young and we don't know yet what the final tally will be I think we know enough to say with some certainty that New Hampshire tonight has made Bill Clinton the comeback kid you, you, you wonder with those sound bites <clears throat> like Reagan with a microphone <clears throat> how long they had that in the can <clears throat> It's, it's got a nice tone to it. Um, Bill Clinton in 1992, uh, the other candidates laid off him <clears throat> on the Vietnam question, <clears throat> excuse me, including Bob Kerry, who was a decorated Vietnam soldier. And I asked him um, at the newspaper shortly before it came out about how Clinton had circumvented uh, the draft and all these letters, et cetera, and, and, he, and he wouldn't touch it. I thought it was fair to ask about a possible next commander-in-chief's um, veracity on whether he did or didn't serve in the military, but Kerry wouldn't touch it. Clinton says he's the comeback kid. He finished second to Paul Songus, who was from Massachusetts. <clears throat> and, you know, Clinton could say, how could I beat the guy from next door? But as I said earlier, I don't think the guy from next door thing really cuts much. In New Hampshire. We've talked about Pat Buchanan and Naki Loeb. Yeah. This is Mrs. Loeb and talking about the paper's endorsement of Pat Buchanan Great. that year. Let's watch. On this program Friday, Pat Buchanan called you the godmother of uh, New Hampshire politics and of his campaign. That's what I understand. I think that's my favorite uh, nickname for the moment. I'll, I'll buy that anytime. 
Why did you endorse Pat Buchanan? We have endorsed uh, Pat Buchanan for, uh, well, we endorsed him before we endorse him now. I think that he is the only person who really uh, stands for what we believe in. He's, he's the only genuine article. The nice thing about Pat Buchanan is when he says something, he means it. He has a paper trail going back uh, 20 some years, and what he said 20 some years ago is what he's saying today. When the history books look at Pat Buchanan as his presidential runs, what will his legacy have been? Um, you know, he was a forerunner to, to Trump's version of Republicans in terms of uh, America first, um, no foreign entanglements, um, no foreign trade agreements. Um, I think Pat um, is upset with the Republicans from 1876 doing stuff with tariffs. But he's going to be seen as an on-the-ground campaigner who told it as he saw it. The headline that he held up the night that he won said, Read Our Lips, which was a line from George Bush's um, convention speech or something um, in which Pat turned into a TV commercial because Bush said, Read Our Lips, No New Taxes. And then he went back on that um, in the White House. And that made a, a big difference. Uh, Mrs. Loeb there reminds me of a lady that she also tried to get to run earlier for president, Ambassador Jean Kirkpatrick, who came up here and we had a big dinner for her with a lot of people pleading with her to run, I think, in 88 against uh, Bush. But she wouldn't do it. But Pat's, Pat's the real deal. That's what I think his legacy is, is both a candidate and a political commentator, and I'm still running his column. 2008 is our next, uh, and that is right in the midst of the financial meltdown. We've got two wars going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. Barack Obama wins the Iowa caucuses, and he's leading going into New Hampshire. Bit of video again. This is Hillary Clinton at the Cafe Express. He's very likable. I, I, I agree with that. I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likable no. enough. Thank Hillary you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I have so many opportunities from this country. I just don't want to see us fall backwards. You know, so. You know, this, this is very personal for me. It's not just political. It's not just public. I see what's happening, and we have to reverse it. And some people think elections are a game. They think it's like who's up or who's down. It's about our country. It's about our kids' futures. And it's really about all of us together. You know, some of us put ourselves out there and do this against some pretty difficult odds. First part from the debate, the, yeah. the leading candidate going in with his "you're likable enough," and then following up with a bit of an emotional moment for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think Carl Cameron asked the question at the debate. He used to be with uh, MUR and then uh, uh, Fox, and um, yeah, Ob Obama's answer was a little uh, less than genuine. Um, Hillary, I think, was being uh, honest. Um, in her tears um, there. I think that she was at the 
at the late stages of a campaign that wasn't going uh, as well as she thought it was going to go and uh, and opened up about it. Um, Obama's a guy who didn't do a lot of on-the-ground campaigning in New Hampshire that year um, and still did. I think he won, didn't he? He did. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was not on the ground as much or, or as excessively. Oh, sorry. Uh, actually, he did not. Hillary oh. Clinton defeated him by 2.6. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's the expectations game. Same thing with McCarthy. McCarthy didn't beat LBJ. Expectations game. On the Republican side, that was John McCain's second time at the White House. He won over Mitt Romney in 2008. Uh, a, a sentence or two about John McCain's legacy in presidential politics. I think his legacy is bigger than presidential politics. I think McCain is one of the real uh, heroes of this uh, country uh, for the ages in many ways. Um, like Pat, although they didn't agree on a lot of political stuff, but a straight shooter. Uh, he was not a politician in that sense. He called them as he saw them. And his service in uh, Vietnam uh, is just extraordinary. He was invited to leave the cage, and he wouldn't do it. He said, first one's in, first one's out. And he was junior to a lot of, of the captives. And he came back here, and he, in New Hampshire, came back from next to Zip, um, no no staff, no poll numbers, uh, on the ground, convince people, and you could see it in their eyes that they bought his um, campaign because he was telling the truth. And I gave him a penny. Yeah, I, I read that he was superstitious, and I found a penny in the parking lot of the union leader the morning of the election, and I picked it up, and he came in just to say thanks for supporting him. And I said, oh, I found a penny. Can I have that? I don't know where it is now, but it's cool that he took it. We have only about three or four minutes left, and I want to spend uh, half of that on 2016. Bernie Sanders defeating Hillary Clinton yeah. by 22 points. Oh, yeah. And Donald Trump, double-digit win. What were the New Hampshire voters saying to the candidates that year? I think uh, in both cases, it was enough with Washington. We want something completely different. And the voters in the Democratic primary were saying to the Democratic National Committee, enough with you telling us um, in stage managing this campaign. They didn't want to have debates. They wanted Hillary uh, coronated. Um, we got involved with having a last-minute debate at UNH, which did, did go off, although the DNC said they wouldn't do it if the union leader was one of the sponsors. But they just wanted it for Hillary. And the voters said no. That was a signal that they were sending. And on the Republican side, they were saying, no, we don't want any politicians. Here's this guy, Trump. He's a businessman. He's not a politician, or at least we don't think he is. What the hell? We're going we're gonna to roll the dice and uh, give him a shot. And as we close, as the voters make their choice this year, what's yeah. the mood in the state going into the election? I think it's tough to read I think on the Democratic side, it's very uh, energized, and the Democrats and independent-minded are looking for somebody that they think can beat Donald Trump. And on the Republican side, they're saying he has his faults, but we have a great economy going, and uh, we're going to stick with him. 
and shut up and we don't need impeachment or anything like it. So New Hampshire is a microcosm of the United States, which is the most divided it has been <laughs> since um, about 1861. And a final question. Uh, the union leader uh, uh, throughout history has been a part of the story. Uh, what in this digital age is your paper's role? How has it changed? Um, we still have about the same readership, but it's a lot of it is online, and uh, that doesn't bring in the revenue that offline does. But we're still uh, covering these races. We do not have as many reporters as we had back in some of those uh, years that you showed. But we still feel it uh, our obligation to readers to report on what these uh, candidates are saying in various parts of the state. And I'm one step removed from it now and don't have to worry about it. But what I see uh, in the paper and online uh, is pretty good coverage. And the online is, as soon as it's out there, it's online. It's, it's incredible, and uh, it's a balancing act for the, for the editors. All right, what do we put in the print version versus what do we put online? And breaking news goes online, and a lot of what the candidates say. And you can tell that the candidates are reading uh, it because they'll question anything that they think is not fair to their candidate. Or Why can't we come in for an editorial board meeting? Because we don't have an editorial board, but you're welcome to come in. And they do. Well, it could easily have been a two-hour conversation. I told you, you didn't have enough time, Susan. Come <laughs> up to New Hampshire. We'll do the other hour. We will see you up there once again this year. Thank Great. you for spending an hour with us. Uh, thanks, C-SPAN. You do an extraordinary job, not just for presidential politics, but overall in the country. And you got a nice editorial from the president and publisher of the Union Leader the other day about that. Much appreciated, and we'll see you, see you in New Hampshire. Yep. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.